be reading in a moment from Psalm number one. You'll find the collection of Psalms in your Bible, probably in about the middle of your Bible. And I'm going to read Psalm one as the beginning of a series on a collection of Psalms that uh, all of us, uh, Pastor Paul leading us starting next week, but me starting off, will be doing between now and Christmas which is coming. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for joining us this morning from wherever you are from. Please hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who does walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Familiar words to you, I hope. Perhaps you've memorized them. Psalm 1 opens, it begins with words that open up the prospect of blessing. Blessed is the person. Blessed is the man. That blessedness is not a small thing. Do you want it? Is there anything in life that you want more? Is there anything in life that you would let stand in between you and something so precious as blessedness from Lord God Almighty? It is a wonderful prospect that the psalm opens up with. It is not a small thing to think about being blessed. I hope you think about it often. I hope it's a big part of your life and the pursuit of it, the seeking after it, knowing how to lay hold of it and treasuring it. Blessedness. It is the prospect, consider it for a moment, it is the prospect of standing in a place of favor with God. Now consider all that we understand biblically by the word God. We use the word lightly, but it is filled with biblical understanding of what we mean by the word God and to stand in a place of favor with God. 
Blessing here is the amazing prospect of being in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Uncreated himself, creator and owner of all things, beautiful and perfect in all of his ways, and unlimited in power. That's the prospect of blessedness. And the psalm opens up with this prospect that are you going to let anything stand in your way? All the counsel of the wicked, all the ways of sinners, all of the seed of scorners, is any of that going to lay ambush to you with the prospect of blessedness? Did you know that the wicked have a counsel? You know how well-worn the path of sinners is? You know how firmly established the seat of scoffing is in our world? Lord, may you make us like Jacob who wrestled with the angel, said, I will not let go until you bless me. I want the blessing. It is the blessing that sustains us as Christians. I am convinced of it. The Apostle Paul in the same book that Rick read from the book of Ephesians opened up, said, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, blessed us in Christ with every heavenly blessing That is what sustains the Christian life, that sense of blessing. When I'm convinced, and even this week, again, having the privilege of hearing someone speak of coming to faith in Christ for the first time and the awakening of it, the power of it, I'm convinced that nobody can be scared into the kingdom of God. I'm convinced that nobody can be manipulated and shamed into the kingdom of God. Of God. And those things may provoke a response, but the parable of the soils reminds us that many things once begun are not sustained. And what is sustained and what bears fruit is the blessing. Personally, it was after many years of scaring, not working on me, that I came to faith in Christ. Not because of the insurance for the afterlife, but for the blessing while living. To know the favor of God was something unimaginably great to me, the prospect of it. Those of you that are in the 1055 reading program, reading through the book of Joshua right now, you're reading about the inheritance of the land. And the people from Manasseh come to Joshua and say, the land that's given to us, it's, it's, it's hard, Joshua. There's a lot of trees on it. And there's a lot of people with chariots. And it's going to be difficult. And, and Joshua says, do you want it? Do you really want it? It's not going to come to you if you're just sitting there. 
Those trees are just going to stay there. Those chariots are going to keep rolling. You have to want it. And you have to go take it. And it's really ground zero for the Christian life. We're not seeking first the fruit. We're seeking first the blessing, which is God himself, to lay hold of God. And the evidence of that blessing attained is fruit. But it begs the question, what do we want? What do we most want? And I love how the psalm begins. Here's the main point that I'd like to get across this morning. If you don't get anything else, I hope we get this from the text, that, that Psalm 1 can, uses two very vivid and easily accessible metaphors from the harvest, that of fruit and chaff. You know what fruit is, and you know what chaff is. Very accessible illustrations, metaphors, and they show two paths. One is to God's favor, that blessedness, and one is to the place of God's judgment. One is the fruit and one is the chaff. And at the center of that blessing is the word of God. What brings the blessing, what brings the favor of God, what brings God himself into the life of his people is that meditation on the law, meditation on the word of God. And and here is why one would delight in the law of God. The reason one would delight in the word of God, in the law of God, is because of how it correlates to verse 1. And those triple threats that are described there in verse 1. The law of God correlates to each one of them in an alternative, in a, a completely different voice, in a completely different way, in a completely different place. In other words, those who would choose to make God's word their primary voice, to meditate on God's word, that primary voice, and there's so many voices in our world, which is a, a real discipline of the Christian life. What is the primary voice in my life? I can give quick answers to what it should be, but in the discipline of daily life, what is the main voice? But in making God's word the primary voice, would hear a counsel. <laughs> There's counseling in the word of God that is very, very different than the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked is God doesn't see. God can't see. That's the counsel of the wicked. God doesn't really care. But the beauty of the meditation on God's word is a counsel that is very, very different that corresponds to the reality of God's presence everywhere all the time. 
Those that would meditate upon the word of God would learn a path that is so much safer than the path of sinners that is so well-worn and so normalized in our world. And those that would meditate upon the word of the Lord and make it their delight would find a seat that is so much more reasonable than the seat of scoffers. You know what the, the seat of the scoffer is? It's the reversal of the throne. Instead of God sitting on the seat judging, the scoffer puts himself on the seat and judges God. That's the seat of the scoffer. And it makes no sense of the world in which we live. And all of that counsel from God, all of the, the paths that we learn in God's word, all of the, the place of the seat that we learn about where God truly sits, all of that leads to a fruitfulness. And it is a fruitfulness that is wonderfully not circumstantial, like the tree that bears its fruit in season. And we don't even know yet what all the seasons of life are. But to have the prospect of blessedness, to know that, Lord, whatever the season might be, whatever the season of the soul, whatever the season of the home, whatever season of the circumstances of our life, there, there, there is a prospect for fruitfulness because of the counsel, because of the path, because of that seat that the word of God declares to us. And that fruitfulness and that blessing endures. Like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I have learned in whatever circumstances to be content. The second analogy after fruitfulness is chaff. I grew up around chaff. My dad was a wheat farmer. I know what it's like to have chaff in every part of the body. And it's definitely worthless. And it's not what you're harvesting for. The judgment of God is like wind on chaff. On Saturday afternoons, I come out of my back shed where I roast coffee, a pound of green beans every Saturday afternoon, and I come out with about two cups of chaff. And it is so light, it won't register on my 100th gram scale, about two cups of the stuff. And I dump it into the yard. But sometimes, if there's a wind blowing, I try to dump it and it blows straight into my face. That's what chaff is like. It has no ability to withstand anything, particularly to stand before the seat of God, to stand in the judgment of God. The psalm would give us that image of chaff. 
just blown in. You know, I've, I've begun to pray through this song. Lord, would you make the wicked like chaff in this world? All of the wicked intentions, all of the wicked purposes, all of the, the evil desires that are in this world, Lord, would you make them like chaff before you? Just, in other words, they can't take root, so they can't have their purposes fulfilled. Sovereign Lord God Almighty. It is the picture of the might and of the justice and the authority of God's throne, the true seat. And Israel never produced that fruit. Every, Israel never was the tree bearing fruitfulness that God called them to be, anticipating another who would come and be all that Israel was not. So John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, when he appears, he says, when they came to be baptized by him, by him and he called them the brood of vipers and says, even now the axe is at the foot of the tree. And one who is coming, who is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, who will gather his wheat into the barn and will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. All the chaff. Lord, help us not to be chaff. Lord, help us not to be unfruitful trees. But those are the prayers that lead us not to our inner selves. Those are the prayers that lead us to Christ. I memorized this psalm as a young man, recognizing its, its value, recognizing its worth, and I've re-memorized it in the last week. But over the years, recognizing its value and its worth, still really not knowing what to do with it. So what do I do when I meditate on the law all the time? Do I, do I open the Ten Commandments? Do I, do I memorize those? Is, is that what I do? And it becomes a little bit of a, like a, like a treadmill. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I should do this. I'm going to do this. And then later it's, I didn't do this. And then a little while later it's, I'm going to do this. I should do this. And then it's, I didn't do this. Do you know that treadmill? It gets tiring, and you feel like giving up after a while. And so as New Testament believers, we have to have the gospel, and we have to know how to get to Christ in all of the things that point to Christ, including Psalm 1. So this is a, a sure pathway to Christ. If you've memorized it, then every time you go through it in your head, it needs to be a sure pathway to Christ, not merely another jumping on to the treadmill. The psalm must not be read by New Testament believers as if Jesus had never come. As if all that existed still was what David had. David had the first five books of Moses. That's all. 
David had the tabernacle system. That's all. David had the people of God limited to the physical descendants of Abraham. And we have so much more as New Testament believers with with New Testament eyes looking on to these Old Testament texts and, and all that they anticipate, all that they prophesy about the one who was to come. And so when we read our Bibles, we have to read them with that New Testament lens, with that that hope and faith in Christ. I I don't know that the devil cares how much we read our Bible as long as our reading remains Christless. And reading through this and any other part of the Old Testament, as New Testament Christians who know and have proclaimed to us the preeminence of Christ in all things. We looked at that last week in Colossians chapter 1, 19. And the fulfillment of all the things that the Spirit of God has written beforehand. And we look to see the prophetic element. We look to see the anticipation of what is coming, not merely looking within to see what have I got, but looking at the text to say what is coming. What is yet to be in the text? And what, do I, what have I received about what is yet to be? And how Christ fulfills all of that prophecy. That's why it's such a, a beautiful text in after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus when, when Jesus is intercepted by some of the disciples and he sits and he has a, a meal with them. And, and, and Luke says this. He says that, that he opened their word. In other words, he took their Bible and he says, look at this. I have fulfilled the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he says. I'm so thankful for that one little phrase, and the Psalms, because I read them daily. There's no such thing as finishing the Psalms in my life, because when I've read the 150th, the next one is, is one, number one. A regular, habitual reading of the Psalms, and I, I don't know how impoverished we are as God's people to not know how to sing them. <laughs> Maybe you do. Maybe you've been reared in a congregation that knew how to sing the psalms. And if you can put Psalm 1 to a tune, I'd love to hear it. Yet we can memorize them. And we can see in them how Christ has fulfilled them. That does not mean that we study less what David knew and what David meant by the words he used to his own congregation. But it does mean that when we have done all of that historical and analytical study, that we're only halfway there as New Testament believers. All of that body of knowledge, all of the, the work that we put in to say, well, what, what, was, what was in David's mind? What was he thinking? What was he saying to the people around him? As New Testament people, we're only halfway there. All of that is, is material. It's air to be put into the trumpet yet that blows and proclaims Christ to us. I love to fiddle with wood. I'm not very good at it, but I have learned something that annoys me, and that is when you finish all of the structure, you're only half finished. Because you've got to do all of the finishing, all of the sanding, all of the epoxy, all of the making it functional. And uh, that annoys me, because I'd like to be finished when I've, <laughs> when I've uh, made it uh, into the structure that, uh, that I have made. 
And it is so much work to actually finish it. But so it is with the study of the scriptures and what the Spirit has given to us. All of the historical analysis is only half the work until we get to the proclamation of Christ. And that requires what I call drawing the right lines. So when I read the Psalms, I'm drawing a line, okay? And I need to draw the lines correctly. From the tree, this tree that has got its roots into the streams of living water, this tree that is bearing fruit, from the one who obeys God perfectly so as to to not stand in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not walk in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scorner, the line can't be drawn, first of all, to me. Or it's going to kill me. Or it'll deceive me into thinking that I've done it. It's anticipating something. And so the line is drawn from the text to Christ. He is our righteous one. He is the tree, as Isaiah 11 prophesies, from Jesse will come a root. And from its branches will bear fruit. And it's a marvelous hope that we have to draw the line from the text to Christ and all that is anticipated in the text and Christ being the fulfillment of all of it and then drawing the line from Christ to me. In the worship of Christ, and all of the blessing that he brings into my life and the, and the favor with God that he brings into my life. And he is the one that I meditate upon day and night. He is preeminent over all things. Not only is it a sure path to Christ, but it is a faithful guide to prayer. A pastor named Tim Keller used these words years ago that helped me and encouraged me in a habit that I was already formed in, but needing encouragement on. And, and Tim Keller said this, that the Psalms are the, is the prayer book of the saints. It might not be our song book, but it can be our prayer book. Do you ever wonder how to pray? You ever wonder what words to use, how to, how to speak to God? Here the Christian finds the words, the vocabulary for prayer. And as we go through the Psalms, as we go through selective Psalms, we'll, we'll, we'll see this, the 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 fruitfulness that it has for our, our prayer life. And the things that the psalmist introduces here are as an introduction really to all of the psalms. The blessing of God and the judgment of God upon the wicked. 
Those are things that the Psalms wrestle with for the next 149 Psalms. Lord, I know the blessing. I believe the blessing. I I want the blessing. But Lord, I don't feel it. So many of the Psalms are like that. And wrestling with that that distance from God, that, that separation from God. Where are you, God? Wrestling with the judgment of the wicked. Lord, I know that the judgment, that the wicked are like chaff. But Lord, I don't see it. I see the wicked thriving. That's what I see. And all of the emotions, all of the the things of the heart and the mind and the soul that come to the surface and how they correlate and relate to our own life and circumstances and homes and relationships. And to be driven to the Psalms and to be be taught the words, to be given the words to lay hold of God and be guided in our thoughts faithfully. Our Lord also gave us words to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And as you read the Psalms, you'll, you'll discover the vocabulary to pray that all that our Lord taught us to pray, to see his kingdom come, to see his name made great, to see us given our daily bread, to see us forgiven our trespasses. It's all there. These are words that I use to pray in the Psalms. Let me share them with you in, in conclusion. Three things I pray through all of the Psalms. I say, first of all, Lord, forgive me. I say, secondly, Lord, thank you. And I say, thirdly, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Thank you and help me. Forgive me when I so often listen to the counsel of the wicked. Forgive me that I so often find myself in the path of sinners. Forgive me that I often find myself in the seat of scorners. Forgive me that in the circumstances of my life, sometimes I find myself fruitless. Forgive me sometimes when I'm indifferent to the blessing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that there is one who did not ever walk in the counsel of the wicked. Thank you that there is one who I can depend upon and trust in, who you have put me into, who is a fruitful tree that never ceases to bear fruit. And Lord, help me. Help me in Christ. Help me daily to bear fruit. Help me to understand when the counsel of the wicked is so wrong and the path of sinners is so wayward and the seat of scorners is is so wrong. Help me, please, Lord. a sure pathway to Christ, and a faithful guide to prayer. Would you pray with me now, please? Lord, forgive us if and whenever we are indifferent to your blessing. Lord, forgive us when we even seek blessing in wrong places. 
Thank you for all of the blessings that Christ has secured for us. Thank you for all of the richness of the truth that he has raised, the, raised us up in Christ to heavenly places. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to lay hold. Help us to be mindful. Help us to be thankful for your blessing. Help us to be humbled by it. Help it to bear fruit in our lives. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.